Howdy, and welcome to the Six Gun Justice Podcast, where we celebrate the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm your host, Paul Bishop. Jeffrey Marriott was a middle child born in the middle of the country in the middle of the century. However, since then, he has lived around the world and around the country and has finally landed in Gilbert, Arizona. Jeff graduated from San Jose State University with a degree in radio, TV, and film. He has worked in a comic book shop, was a manager of Hunter's Books in La Jolla, California when his first fiction was published, and he has been the VP of Marketing for Wildstorm Productions, a senior editor for DC Comics, an editor-in-chief for IDW Publishing, a co-founder and co-owner of the independent specialty bookstore Mysterious Galaxy, and a freelance writer and editor. Jeff has written over 70 books, including westerns, thrillers, mysteries, horror, fantasy, and more. He has been a finalist for the Spur Award from the Western Writers of America, the Peacemaker Award from the Western Fictioneers, the Bram Stoker Award from the Horror Writers Association, and for his comics writing, the Harvey Award and the Glyph Award. Currently, Jeff is writing the Cody Cavanaugh Western series for Wolfpack Publishing, with another series, Waiting in the Wings. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Hey, Paul. It's good to talk to you. I understand your love of Western fiction started inside a Russian barbershop? Yes. How did that happen? My father fell in love with France during World War II, and after the war, he continued working for the army as a civilian. He got a chance to be transferred to Paris and jumped at it. So when I was six years old, we moved to France. The barber who cut the hair of all the DOD civilians was a Russian guy who had a shop inside a building that was leased by the Department of Defense in downtown Paris. This was the height of the Cold Warrior. This was in the early 60s, and Europe was crawling with spies of every type then. So I don't know why they let a Russian cut hair, but they did, and everybody talked to him. And he had comment in his little waiting area. I had been a huge fan of Roy Rogers when I was back in the States watching TV, but in France there was no American TV. So I saw this comic with Roy Rogers on it, and I flipped. It's like, oh, that's great. I picked it up, and I read it. It was the first comic book that I remember ever reading, and it set me on my course of disreputable literature from then on. As a young man, six years old, and I think things grasp our imagination at that time, it never really lets us go. Yep. And so you're talking about your love for Roy Rogers, and I know you like Topolon Cassidy and other cowboy stars. That formed a part of your childhood that you look back on with fondness. Do you feel that shaped the things that you wanted to write about later? I absolutely do. I have a couple of photos of myself at, I think, two and five on Christmas. I'm the two years old when I'm wearing a licensed Hopalon Cassidy outfit. On the five-year-old one, I was wearing a fringe shirt. The fringe was not as impressive as Roy's usually was, but the hat and the fringe shirt and the jeans and the holster and everything. And I still dress that way today. I'm sure you were a hit at your high school prom then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've also taken the Western yourself in a somewhat different direction. I want to talk about some of your more mainstream stuff a little later. But you've also stepped heavily into the weird Western subgenre. How did that come about for you? Was that a comics background thing that led you to that? Yes. I was working for Wildstorm Productions, which was part of Image Comics, owned by Jim Lee, who's now creative director at DC. We were launching a line of non-superhero comics, which was very unusual for us because most of our stuff was very superhero-oriented. And he came to me one day and he said, hey, you like Westerns? I said, yeah, I love them. He said, why don't you create a Western comic for us? 
And this was in a time period when there weren't really any Western comics, weird Western or otherwise, yeah. on the stands. Yeah, it was in 97. Jonah Hex had folded, and it was the only Western that had been doing any business, but it hadn't been doing enough business, so they had canceled it. So there was nothing on the stands. So I put on my thinking Stetson, and I came up with a series called Desperados and pitched it to Jim. I was thinking it would be really cool if I could put some supernatural elements in this because I liked horror and supernatural stuff, and I thought it would sell better in that environment if there was that element. But I didn't put it in the original pit because Jim had asked me for a Western. He didn't say a weird Western or a supernatural Western or anything, and I was concerned that he wouldn't buy it. But then he came back to me and he said, I like this, but maybe you could add a supernatural element to it. Oh, yeah, I, I guess so. Okay. What a great idea, boss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I did, and it was a big hit. The first issue sold out immediately, and we had to do a second printing. There ended up being five miniseries with five different artists, including one by John Severin, who was one of the deans of Western comics going way back into the 40s. And when Desperados came about, he was not doing mainstream comics anymore. He was working for Cracked Magazine doing humor stuff and was not very happy about it. So my editor had a conversation with John and came to me and said, hey, John would really let you get back into comics. Do you think you could write a Desperado story for him? And I went home that night and came back the next day with the pitch and Severin loved it. I think he was 81 at the time, but he delivered 22 pages of beautiful penciled and inked work every six weeks on the dot. That's amazing. Working with yeah. a legend like that. No, that was a high point in my comics career, for sure. Desperado ran for a decade? Yeah. Did you move on from there to Deadlands, based on an RPG franchise, correct? Yes. Was that after Desperado? The Deadlands RPG came out the same year as the first issue of Desperados. They were both in the formative stages at the same time. There must have been something in the water. A couple of years later, Shane Hensley, who created Deadlands, did come to me on the basis of my work on Desperados and asked me to write a short story for an anthology that he was putting out set in the Deadlands universe, and I did that. And then fast forward a couple of decades, I forget exactly how many years ago, but maybe five years ago, a new company had a Deadlands comics license, and they needed a script in a hurry because one of their writers dropped out. And they asked me, and I agreed to do the script. But then as I was talking to the publisher, I realized that he needed some kind of guidance in comics publishing. And I had that background. So we talked a lot and got to be friendly. And then he said he would really like to do Deadlands novels, but he didn't know how to go about approaching publishers. So I approached publishers on his behalf and made a deal with Tor to do three novels, which was basically a way of setting up a deal whereby I could write a Deadlands novel and get paid for it. <laughs> It's always good to get paid for it. This is interesting to me because we talk about RPG, role-playing game. And for those who are uninitiated, the iconic role-playing game being Dungeons and Dragons and everything else is spawned off from there. Am I simplifying that too much or no. would you say that's a good simplification? That's exactly it. All of these franchises, such as Deadlands and other role-playing games... They have found a way to increase their universe, be it in comics or novels like you're talking about, based on the strength of their name alone. They become a brand. Yep. And that really is a way in the business of tying this all together. I think if you went to Tor and said, I want to do this weird Western series called Deadlands, and they have never heard of it before, it's not tied to anything else, there's probably very little chance that you would have got the go-ahead on that. Yes, but because it's an established franchise, all of a sudden there's that interest and yes, the publisher can capitalize on it. Yeah. 
some of these big games have just massive fan bases. I mean, we're talking Halo and all of those other things. Halo is now, I think, a series on Netflix, isn't it? And it all started as a role-playing game and a video game then after that. It's interesting the way the business has changed because of all these other areas of the media that have become available to us. Yes. I have to say, I'm actually a little jealous of you because you have worked in so many of these franchise universes. You came in some ways a commodity, a reliable commodity for a lot of these novelizations of TV shows such as Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel and NCIS and many other things. Is that something that just happened or did you set out to do that? It happened. You turned around and there it was. My first published novel was based on some of the superhero characters the company that I worked for, Wildstone Productions, had created in comics. The company made an animated feature film and sold it to Disney, which promptly put it on the shelf and forgot it was there, but never released it in the U.S. This is more than 20 years ago. It was released internationally by Paramount in a few places. But during the time between Disney buying it and the time anyone realized that Disney was never going to release it, Ace Books came to us and asked if they could license the characters for novels. We said, of course. Turned out that they then asked a friend of mine, Christopher Golden, to write the first novel. Correct me if I'm wrong. Chris Golden is a very awarded horror writer, basically vampires and stuff like that, if I remember correctly. Yep, that's him. He also had been doing a lot of tie-in work, a lot of licensed work. He was doing Buffy stuff at the time, and he was very busy. So he came to me and he said, hey, do you want to write this book called Gen 13? Chris and I had been looking for something to do together, and so he came to me with this proposition where I would write 75% of the book and he would write 25%, and we'd split the money that way. I said, yeah, let's do it. So that was my first published novel. Then he introduced me to his Buffy editor, and I started getting work from them. That was really how that side of the career grew. I ended up writing 11 Angel novels and a few Buffy things. Has the novelization business changed a little bit over the years? It used to be strictly work for hire. Is it still work for hire, or are there royalties sometimes attached? There are sometimes royalties Some of the books that are huge bestsellers, like Star Wars, for instance, pays a pretty good advance. And sometimes you can get royalties. But in most of the business, the royalty percentage is tiny and you often don't earn back your advance. But even if you do, the royalty percentage that you would get is minuscule. So as a writer trying to make a living, you've really got to hustle to turn these stories in on time and professionally so that you get the next assignment from it. Yep. It really can end up being a chase your tail type of situation. And I don't think that most readers understand what goes on behind the scenes in that type of situation. Yeah. I was writing five books a year sometimes in addition to having a day job. I was younger then, so it was easier. We all, as writers, have the reality of a day job that carries the medical insurance and hopefully a pension and all of those other things. I know that I wrote 14 novels while I was working full-time with the Los Angeles Police Department. And it just is one of those things that you do because if you quit to write full-time, all of a sudden the market will disappear on you because the writer's income is so up and down and up and down. Yep. And that's just the reality of the business. Now, while you're doing these novelizations and you're making the advances from them, you also want to do original stuff of your own. How hard is it to find the time to do that? I wrote my first couple of originals while I was still juggling the day job and the licensed work. 
And then I did the thing where you quit the day job, sold my house in San Diego, bought 40 acres out in the Arizona desert and tried just writing. It lasted six years. And like you said, the market collapsed. 2009 was my best year as a complete freelancer. I made about $90,000 that year freelancing. That's a good amount. Yeah, I would have been comfortable with that. But then the economic collapse of 2008, 2009, the impact spread to publishers and they were firing editors and cutting lines. And I was looking at a very difficult 2010 with no book contracts. So I got back into the workforce and I've been in the workforce ever since. It is a lifestyle where you have to think on your feet. You can't always do the things that you exactly want to do. But the fact of the matter is we still keep putting words on paper because yeah. that's what we do. We're writers. Yeah. You've been getting a lot of attention for your novel, Blood and Gold, The Legend of Joaquin Murrieta, which came out in 2021. Yeah. How did you find the story you used for that book? I was approached to write that book by a longtime friend in the entertainment business, largely because he thought it would make a great movie or TV series, but he wanted to have some kind of underlying property he could present. He put me together with Peter Murrieta, who is a fifth-generation descendant of Joaquin's. Joaquin being a bandit from the Gold Rush era. Yes. Peter had all these family stories that had never really been shared with anyone doing any serious writing. Essentially, they were unknown to the public. So I did a ton of research on the gold country, and I read everything that's been written about Joaquin. Some of it is complete nonsense. Much of it is complete nonsense. Some of it has some germs of fact in it. And I wove together the factual stuff with my own ideas about connective tissue because I have this fact and I have this fact. How could he have possibly have done that and then that? These other things must have happened. And we know something, some aspects of what else was happening in California at the time in the early 1850s. I put together a first draft, and then we put that in front of Peter, and Peter came in with notes and suggestions, and then we went back and forth and back and forth until we came up with this 600-page epic, which I believe is as close to being the honest story of Joaquin as we're ever likely to get. Sometimes as writers, we have this nonfiction situation and we really don't have enough of it that we can write it as the complete truth. So we do the best that we can with that nonfiction story within the fictionalized world that we create. We try to be true to the heart of the story, if not to the exact incidents. Exactly. Yeah. I always like it when a movie comes out and it says, based on a true story, that means there may be a few facts in there. But if right. it says, inspired by a true story, there's probably not a whole lot of facts that are going nope. on in that movie. <laughs> yeah, it means someone read a magazine article and said, oh, that gives me an idea. And there you go. Exactly. On from there. You and I crossed paths over the years at Mysterious Galaxy. You were a co-founder of Mysterious Galaxy. Yep. One-of-a-kind bookstore in San Diego. I've done book signings there myself. It's been a hard time for bookstores. Yeah, although that one has survived. It has new owners now, and they moved, but it's still thriving. It'll be 30 years next year. Wow, that's quite impressive for an independent bookstore. Yeah. And it shows the love of the readers that keep going back to the independent bookstores. I saw a figure in the last couple of weeks, I can't remember the exact number, but a surprising number of independent brick-and-mortar stores have opened in the past year. There's a, a flood of bookstores opening all over the place. And that's definitely a good thing for readers, and it's a good thing for writers. For sure. You and I also came back together again when you pitched the Cody Kavanaugh series to Wolfpack. What was your thinking behind that series? It initially started with essentially an idea for the beginning. 
I had this image of a guy in a Confederate prison camp making a promise to a friend who had stolen some Confederate gold, but knew he was not going to get out of the camp alive. He had intended to give the gold to his fiancée, and they would be married and live happily ever after, but he knew that wasn't going to happen. Sean O'Mara was the guy, and that's where the title O'Mara's Gold comes from. Cody was the other guy in the prison camp who was going to survive, and he promised O'Mara he would take the gold tour whenever he got out of the camp. It took him 13 years to fulfill that promise, but he did. But initially, all I had was the guy in the camp making a promise, and I didn't know where it went from there. As an experienced writer, you have that one image in your head, and you let it marinate, and one thing follows after another as the layers of the story onion peel back. For me, I think I'm going in one direction, but when the next layer peels back, you go, oh, no, this is the direction I'm supposed to be going in. Does that happen with you? Oh, yeah. And the cool thing is when you get to the point where you can look back and realize that was really what you were trying for all the time, but you didn't know it until you got into it and started trying to figure it out. And then you take yourself by surprise. Oh, I'm pretty smart. And if you take yourself by surprise, you're going to take your reader by surprise. For me, when I'm struggling with a story point, I'm generally not listening to what the characters are trying to do. If I bat a couple of hundred words, maybe 500 words, and start over again and go down a different path, and all of a sudden things start to flow. Sometimes you have to write yourself into a corner to know you're going down the dead end. Yeah. One trick I learned from David Morrell, father of Rambo, among many other books, if you can't figure out what comes next, interview your character on paper or on the screen and ask your character, why did you do this? What did you have in mind? Or where did you think it would go from there? Answer in the character's voice, and oftentimes the character will then literally tell you what should come next. That's all woo-woo and supernatural and all that kind of stuff, but I have never talked to a fiction writer who doesn't have that happen to them, yeah. where their characters talk to them. It is just a phenomenon. It's like the stories and the characters are out there in the ether, and we just channel them. It's hard work sometimes, but in many yes. ways, that's what I feel we're doing. Yes, absolutely. Did you have the first three books in that series plotted out in your head before you started them, or did you just see where each one would lead you? I had much of the first one plotted out when you and I first talked. You told me Wolfpack might be interested in the series if I put together a pitch. So then I had to sit down and figure out what the other two were going to be. I had no idea. It's one of those things where you say, yes, I can do that. And then you hang up the phone and you go, can I do that? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have to now. What have I committed to? The three books in the series, Omira's Gold, Kittrick Ransom, and Passage to Pedregosa, they are a trilogy that brings things full circle. Do you feel there's more to tell about this character in the future? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, I've, he's in Pedregosa. He's becoming established. He's the town librarian now. But this is what will become Cochise County, where I used to live in Arizona, which is also where Tombstone is and where the Chiricahua Apache were. It's an important place in Western history. The 40 acres that I had out there was about midway between Tombstone and Skeleton Canyon, where Geronimo finally surrendered. It was on rangeland that was used by the Erie Cattle Company. It's where Doug Jones was when he wrote Ghost Riders in the Sky. It's a fascinating place, and there are a million stories to be told about it. And Cody is, I think, a good person to carry us through some of that. You've also done something different with an iconic character. Usually is not associated with the Western, Tarzan. Yes. You have a new Tarzan book coming out that puts him in Arizona? Yes. Edgar Rice Burroughs served in Arizona at Camp Grant in the 1890s, I want to think. 
early 1890s. Edgar Rice Burroughs being the creator of Tarzan. Tarzan. Uninitiated. He wrote some westerns. He wrote some very good books about Apache life. He was at Camp Grant to keep an eye on the Apaches, but at that point they were essentially reservation-bound. There wasn't much conflict between them, so he didn't have a whole lot of actual combat stuff to do. He was just cleaning up the post and going on patrol and doing this kind of boring soldier things that you have to do when there's no one to chase. But he is associated with Arizona and with the West, but he never put Tarzan there. I was asked to write a Tarzan novella by Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated, the, the company that he founded to publish his own books. I started trying to think what I could do with Tarzan that hadn't been done. I was reading my way back through the original Tarzan books, which I'd read long ago. And at the end of Tarzan and the Lion Man, Tarzan is in Los Angeles. He's gone out to Hollywood with a film company that came to Africa. He actually tries out for the role of Tarzan in the movie and is turned down. He's not Tarzan enough. <laughs> and he hates it there and he can't wait to get out. He came in on the Chief, which is the train from Chicago that was the fastest way across the country at that point. It was 1933. And then that's where the story ends. He can't wait to leave. But we never find out what happened after that because in the next book, he's back in Africa. A nice little opening for you. Exactly. So on my novella, the train is wrecked in Arizona. It derails. And there's a woman on board who he met when he was visiting Edgar Rice Burroughs in Tarzana because Burroughs occasionally appeared as a character in his own books. They're very meta in that way. Yes. So I was able to use him as a character. I have a, a meeting, kind of a lunch between him and Tarzan before Tarzan gets on the train. And he meets this woman and her grandfather who used to serve with Burroughs at Camp Grant. Bandits derail the train and they take off with the girl and this priceless artifact that is traveling back to New York to be exhibited in a museum. And Tarzan being Tarzan, he goes after the bandits. So it's Tarzan to the rescue. Tarzan to the rescue in the American Southwest. It's called Tarzan and the Forest of Stone. You might be able to figure out what the Forest of Stone is because it's a real place and it's a very prominent place. Very cool. So it's available in early June, and it is under the novella title Tarzan and the Forest of Stone. Yes. Now, your three Cody Cavanaugh books are all available now from yep. Wolfpack. Mm -hmm. And you also have another non-Western series, but another series coming out from Wolfpack later this year. Tell us a little bit about that. That's the Major Crime Squad Phoenix series, police procedurals. They're coming from the Rough Edges imprint of Wolfpack. It was another situation where I think I came to you when I said Rough Edges or Wolfpack wants a police procedural series. What do you got? Yes. As a follow-up to Cody Kavanaugh. Yep. And I thought, well, I have to come up with a police procedural series that'll get past the penetrating vision of a longtime ex-police officer. You I, did a mighty fine job oh, of it, I must thank say. You. I found a guy, a retired homicide detective from the Phoenix Police Department, who took me under his wing, gave me a tour of the police headquarters, showed me everything I needed to see there, and has answered a million questions and, and helped me keep things as authentic as possible within the boundaries of fiction, obviously. And that comes out starting in September. Yeah. It's not a Western series, but the main character, Russ Temple, grew up on a ranch on the northern outskirts of Phoenix. When he was a kid, the ranch was subdivided by his family over the generations, so there wasn't much left of it, but he wanted to be a rancher. Being a cop is like second best to him, but yes, it's got a Western flavor. I think of it as Longmire meets the shield in the cactus-studded wasteland of Phoenix, Arizona. That's fantastic. 
Jeff, there's the clanging of the chuck wagon triangle telling me it's time to wrap up this episode with some shootouts and shoutouts. Really appreciate you being with me here today. And best of luck with the Cody Kavanaugh series, your Tarzan book, and the upcoming police procedural series. Oh, thanks for having me, Paul. It's, it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks to Mike Bray and Wolfpack Publishing for being the podcast's premier sponsor. Thanks to Western Writers of America's Roundup Magazine, Saddleback Dispatches Magazine, and our Six Gun Justice Patreon subscribers for their support. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and may all your trails be happy. Adios for now. I'm out of here. Let's ride.